Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Achtung, Achtung, or is it Alarm Alarm? I can't remember. John, uh, good to see you. You too, Al. How's it going? Um, great. And James, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. This week on the uh, uh, or the last the last chat you did for the podcast was about setting the scene for 1944 in the Pacific, right? Yes. And I thought what we I wanted to be a bit tangential this week, sort of to chew the cud, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. always. Um, be- because as I lay on my lounger, um, <laughs> in grown, the sun, sun beating down, groaning getting, with getting... a belly full of all inclusive. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> did I want another mimosa? Um, the uh, that we I, I got we got sent the uh, sort of roundup of 25 pages actually of emails. Uh, um, from listeners, um, all of them complimentary. So clearly, some, there's been some weeding gone on. <laughs> some, Our on bribery some level, efforts have really paid off now. <laughs> exactly, Gal Hanger are good to us. <laughs> but basically, there was a really, really interesting uh, an email from a listener called Adam Prestwich. The way he talks about what he does and how it reflects on what some of what we talked about. I wanted to, I wanted to sort of throw out there so we could talk about about this. He said, "So, hi, chaps." Just wanted to drop a note after listening to a recent How to Win a War episode, which covered an overview of some of the logistics, elements and considerations. This is a topic I've also been fascinated in, as professionally I'm a manufacturing engineer. I've always wondered how some of the processes I'm familiar with today were enacted in the Second World War. For background, I've spent 25 years working in the automotive supply chain, including Ford Motor Co. and now Jaguar Land Rover. In my experience, a lot of the problems described in that episode are very similar to the problems we face today. What James is describing in the episode was what we call the demand planning cycle and how demand is received from the field and then fulfilled. Yes. Typically, you can have what's called a pull system where all the demand comes from the customer and you try and build a responsive system to meet that demand as soon as you can, aka build to order. Or alternatively, you can have a push where you build to stock using forecasted demand from the market. And you then have to sell it, even though it might not be exactly what was desired. There's a trade-off 
between precision, give the customer what they want, and time to deliver between these two approaches. Even today with modern demand planning and forecasting digital tools, this is unbelievably difficult. If you have a steady demand with low variation in the product complexity, this is where Henry Ford's you can have any colour you like as long as it's black comes in. Um, in, in the Second World War context, does that mean that means you want your batch of Shermans to be as big as possible and all of the same level of design? This then causes a conflict with the customer who wants a continually better tank. I mean, and he and he, and he goes on, and, and I'm not saying he goes on and on, but it's such an interesting point, such an interesting way of looking at it, because he. He then also, God bless him, says, because of the lead times in ordering products and raw materials, this all has to be done months and months in advance, which is another explanation for Al's theory. The Allies are always six months behind being able to do what they truly want to do. So, Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, so, John, I mean, we... Let, let, I mean, for instance, the, you know, it, 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 the, the Sherman tank is the is sort of, the, 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 I guess, the glowing example of this. Mm-hmm. You know, its virtue is it's mass-produced. Its virtue is it's... That's a push product, isn't it, where that... The U.S. industry is building up a great stock of them and then trying to spread them out all over the world. But then by the end of the war, you see that there are variants and there's a need for the for the market for a higher caliber weapon or a more robust suspension then pushes in in the other way back. Who's doing this? Um, who's who's this going through? I mean, obviously, a big a big a big component in the, is reports from the front saying this tank starts the third time when it's cold rather than the first time. How is that big feedback being driven and what's going on? Yeah, so you've got um, observer reports, mainly through Army ground forces uh, that are happening throughout the entire war. They're quite fascinating, actually. And it's usually people with some serious rank, lieutenant colonels and colonels who are attached to commands. And I always wonder what the dynamic was because, I mean, these could be COs in waiting, and I'm sure many of them wanted to be in command of troops instead. Uh, General McNair, Lieutenant General McNair, who who heads up Army Ground Forces, is sending them all over the globe uh, to give this feedback on operations. So from an historian's point of view, it's it's great stuff because you're getting that really on site. Here's how people and things are performing kind of assessment. Um, so in terms of who's who's doing the adjustments and where that kind of um, sort of what I guess we'll call it blowback from the customer is coming from, it's there. Um, in terms of the the actual production, I mean, that's a much more complex answer. I mean, if we had, I, I, all as you were talking about the push side of this, if we, um, if we had responded to that, we'd end up with the M1 Abrams, uh, is all I could sit here and think of. Because <laughs> I mean, it's the classic example, isn't it, of, of the push yeah. side, right? I mean, that's exactly what the customer wants. The problem, of course, is the damn thing has to be shipped, and that's a serious problem. So for the Sherman, I mean, everything is really has to uh, to be dictated by that and conform to it. And on the doctrinaire side and the ordnance development side and the and the vehicle development side, that's been in the works for years, even before the U.S. is in the war. All of this kind of you know deep dive ish exploratory. Here's what we may need in the next war kind of stuff. And uh, and so you know the the Office of War Plans and all this kind of stuff is is uh, or the War Planning Division, whatever whatever the term is appropriate is taking that into consideration as it's coming up with grand strategy too. But really, in terms of practicality, it's McNair's Army Ground Forces that end up having to deal with this as the war really unfolds. Oh, and one of the interesting things about the Sherman tank, of course, is is that it's 30 tons. And, and even once you've got your chickens and extra logs of wood and piano. five guys in it. and The piano you've stolen. And yeah. the piano you've stolen <laughs> and, 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 the, and the squeeze box um, and all the rest of it. It's still under 40 tons which is of course is essential if you're on the attack because if you're on the attack your enemy is going to blow up every bridge that you come across 
And the most common and easiest way to bridge it is to put a Type 40, Class 40 Bailey bridge on it, which obviously takes 40 tonnes. So if you've got something that's heavier than 40 tonnes, it ain't going to work. So you don't want a massive great tank at that stage of the of, of for much of the war because you haven't got the bridging that can cope with it. There's all these other factors that but come th into play. That's aren't like there? A, that's self-fulfilling, though, isn't it? You've 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 got well, that so you've, bridge, you've, so you've got that. I mean, which is the chicken and the egg in the in the well, Bailey but, Bridge but, Sherman tank? But but you've but again <laughs> you've you've gone down the road of going well. The class the type the class forty is the perfect perfect you know bridge for us to use. Uh oh, we've got comets now, and we've got yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so so we we now need a a bit, you know, we well, now need well, a class sixty, and yeah. and you know, the, you can't just sort of click your fingers and change that. That's the problem. So well, so what is the chicken and the egg with the with the tank and the bridge, John? Do do we? Oh, well, the, the Bailey Bridge is a British in, innovation, so it's so that's the, the the tail wagging the dog. There is that is actually British rail rail loading gauges is that that dictates the size and scope of what British tanks can be, even down to how big a gun they can fit in their turret, which then dictates the bridge, which then feeds back to a Sherman tank. <laughs> and that goes back to the Road Traffic Act of 1930. It's the Road Traffic Act of 1930. <laughs> and rail, but railway gauges go back before Brunel. Well, and the other, the other thing that's really interesting is, is, is if you go to the continent, you step up onto the train, up onto the yeah. carriage. But in British railway design, station design yes. the, the platform is parallel with is level level is with level. the train yeah so you can't over you can't have anything that's wider than the width of the of the carriage whereas in continent you can yeah yeah it's just amazing yeah. when it's you a small thing it. it's oh, yeah, a small exactly. thing just a little so, thing know, but, like but, but, that but, but how that's going to affect your design and everything else but but i tell you what, what, what I, I, was, I was thinking about the development of rolls royce and axial flow jet engines so the Rolls-Royce Avon engine, which is still being used into the 1970s and which powers numerous jets into the 50s and 60s, is developed in 1944. And it's first capable of going into, a, into an aircraft and operating, a, flying an aircraft, I think in 1946, so the year following the war. Maybe 1947, but it's, but it's literally just after. But it is developed in 1944. The interesting thing about jet development um, in Britain is that there is no urgency what's there's an urgency in so much that you know no one wants to kind of be dragging their heels on this stuff but there's not an urgency we've got to get it in quick before the war's over so they take their time over it whereas the german jet engines the umo engines that they use in the um in the me262 for example is really badly built well, with really bad with really just, but well, they're hurrying it through because there's an urgency to well, it well and they're simpler to make than than piston engines they are yeah, yeah, yeah. They I absolutely mean, are, but well, but but they've got a twenty-hour life uh, shelf life, whereas the British, because then they're, they're doing quite fine with what they've got, their Tempests and Spitfires and Lancasters and all the rest of it, and what the American arsenal is, they don't need to hurry up the jet technology. Yeah, the de development of the jet. Well, engine. and when the, the the American jet fighter arrives, it's slower than a Mustang anyway. Ironically, I mean, one of the things that that, that also comes into this though, and I think it's interesting. You, you I mean, Jim, you. you You've tipped into the Germans here. Is one of the things the Americans have control over or, or, or control of is the quality of their raw materials and their steel and stuff. Mm. In a way that the, the the Germans don't. We've got Masters of the Air coming up, and I've just read Don Miller's um, Mighty Eighth, in, in, Masters of the Air, in, in preparation for watching the program and talking about the program. And he he talks about you know the, the distorting effect on German fighter production 
of, of the of the combined bomber offensive in, in truth and then you know the attempts to sort of knock out uh, ball bearings and the attempts to knock out oil synthetic oil production and all you know and then eventually to knock out the rice barn and, and, and our coal all these att- attempts to pull levers to disrupt the uh, german economy and the thing that the thing that the americans never have to face is that kind of molestation of their of their industrial base and i think that's re- i think that, that that's re- really really fascinating is that, that that even then even when your factories are you can still you you still have supply chain problems you still have you know not being able to quite give the customer in the field what he wants even when your factories aren't being bombed on a regular basis and again it leads me it, it, that led, led me to then thinking about you can marvel at german fighter production all you like but just think how much easier they'd had it if there hadn't been a strategic bomber offensive how, how it, more smoothly their industry would have run and the, everything they're doing yeah because it's it's not it's not particularly convenient to have to build a factory in the middle of a mountain it's really not in a remote in a re- underground in a remote corner basically where, you know your labor done by by slaves i mean you know the, well, that, yeah. that is the, not the, ideal the, the, is it you know i mean well, <laughs> it's really it really isn't it's horrible. so the first M, the first me262s so so basically they were built on this mountain then they were put they but but the problem is is you're then nowhere near an airfield air yeah. yeah so they then have to create a lift that goes to the top of the mountain <laughs> and they level out this airfield on this uh, this airstrip on the top of the mountain yeah. but the problem is it's not really long enough for it yeah but at least you're going off a mountain so you've got a bit of drop it's a bit yeah. like going off an aircraft carrier <laughs> so what they had to do is they had to put this extra boost on yeah. them and almost no fuel because otherwise it'd be too heavy which would give them the kind of enough to take off and 50 miles worth to get to the nearest airfield where they could probably be going. And no I mean, one has and no one has flown jets before. And no one's flown right. jets before. Yeah, so, oh, by so, the way, so, we've never done this. So good luck. To say to say this is inconvenient is kind of yeah. massively understating. It is, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. When it comes to to steal, there's never, for instance, there's never a point where the Americans think they're going to run out, is there? There's, there's, no. Not to my knowledge. It's, it's, now, the, interestingly it's, enough, it's, we do after the war because of a strike. And and this actually affects the uh, repatriation program of uh, bringing home the war dead because they're all supposed to be in steel caskets. And that process gets held up for, I don't know, about nine months or something like that because of a steel strike. And there's also a railway strike which which also then and here's how everything fits together which is why this is so fascinating there was a lot of let residual resentment of organized labor coming over from the war because you know unions had gone on strike returning soldiers resented that and so you have the taft hartley act in 1947 which really curtails the power of labor unions and allows the president to uh, to slap an injunction on any strike he feels endangers national safety or health which could be a railway strike so i mean it's so we we're not really in danger of running out of the you know the, all the the resources we need to make the steel but we have our own internal problems that affect the availability of steel and, and, and this was kind of happening during the war, too, because of those, you know, aforementioned strikes, um, you know, that, that you have a coal miner strike or, you know, something like that, that really does affect the war effort. So we introduced that element to it as well, much less, I should point out, too, our racial strife, which at times is going to cause problems with, uh, with the perpetuation of production because of riots or labor discord or whatever else it will be. So it's interesting because the Germans have their problems, which of course are existential and much more serious, but even a secure country like the U S has some of the, has some level of problems that affect, I guess, what is produced, what gets where and all these other things we're talking about. Yeah. And and I suppose if you're, if you're, on, 
I mean, it, and it, it extends. This happens in Britain too. So there's, there's strike. There's plenty of striking mm. going on, and it doesn't go down very well. Um, well, it was striking. There was coal miners striking. I think March 1944. Yeah, mm. yeah. Bet the soldiers yeah, were go, thrilled with that, right? Yeah, yeah it doesn't go down well <laughs> at the front. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, people not aren't, aren't exactly aren't delighted with that. But 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 then I suppose you know it's it, it's nevertheless going to be a necessary function if you if you if you expand your economy out of nowhere and you take a load of a load of men out of it, mm-hmm. take a load of labour out of it. You are you you're going to you 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 know that you're empowering labour mm-hmm. is the is the Absolutely. is part of the problem there, isn't it? That, and, and appeals to appeals to patriotism only run only run so far, don't they? If people think they can make so, for sure, they, it runs as far <laughs> as your checkbook. I mean, it's uh, yeah. well. I mean, and, and the other thing too is you'd you'd seen a, a very pro labor administration, yeah. You know, in the yeah. 1930s, that's still in there in the 1940s. You'd had the Wagner Act in 1935, which was extremely pro labor. It's part of the New Deal. Yeah. Um, so there was yeah. kind of that expectation, I think, in labor. So th- this is mind blowing. When FDR takes over in 1933, there's three million members of labor unions. By the time he dies in 1945, there's 14.8. Um, so I mean, like you said, the power of labor unions is really growing, just out of sheer size in this case. But also, they could see the influence that they had, how badly the country needed them, and so then this creates social tension, which I think is quite fascinating. Because uh, if I'm sitting in a foxhole and I'm getting paid $21 a month as a private and that that, that steel worker or whatever is back home living uh, under his own roof, secure with three meals and making good money, um, and then he goes on strike, how am I going to feel about that when my life is on the line? Um, yeah, you can totally you understand that. Um, you know, and yet the, the labor union argument is, hey, soldier, we're in the same fight here. Against the industrialists, against the capitalists, against you know the, yeah. those who have exploited us, and those who are sending you to your death for whatever you know we're fighting for, you know whatever it is. The other interesting thing too, labor. This shows how how sort of kind of hard left some of the labor unions were. Uh, many of them were were determined not to to really participate in the mobilization uh, that we already have in forty and forty one until the Soviet Union is in the war, um, and then the, the mindset completely changes. So it's, the the political side is is certainly well. I mean, the, the, there are tensions in the UK around that. Although the the basically the you know the, the what would you'd call like mainstream Labour come into government in order to in order to, to gather respectability from being part of a, a, a coalition government in 1940. But there are still there are still people who you know you, you're sort of Morning Star people who are who are not interested in. For, uh, uh, joining the war effort, are there until, uh, again until until Barbarossa happens, and suddenly they suddenly they have to change sides again, having <laughs> changed sides in 1939 again fighting fascism. I mean, what what, what the, the, interestingly to to go back to Adam's email, he makes the point. Um, I mean, he says I appreciate that some people might not find this is is a sexy topic, but I think we're, we're I think we're pretty hot for it right now. Yeah, very uh, hot for uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he says I think it's really fundamental to understanding how the war got done. Not Agree only that, that mm-hmm. not only that. Impact continued post-war. As an example, I don't think it's a coincidence that a substantial proportion of modern manufacturing philosophy and thinking came from Japan in the fifties and the sixties. Mm-hmm. So he thinks he thinks that that. But that who's influencing Japan? Because they lose, because they can't make manufacturing well, that, that work for them, and so they in the fifties they have a complete rethink and look at how the Americans have done it and look at look at how actually you 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 learn the lessons of of push-pull supply manufacture. Well, I've been talking about this book I've been reading, Judgment at, at Tokyo mm-hmm. by. Uh, Gary Bass 
and uh, which is amazing about the uh, Tokyo war trials in for, uh, 46 to 48. He makes the point that literally the only country that works, you know, fun- functions really successfully out of, out of all this is Japan. Well, there's something to think about. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a second. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk. Uh, USA with John McManus and James Holland and myself, Al Murray. And well, I should, Jim, Jim my, just dropped. Jim, Jim just threw a big one in our laps there, didn't he? Jim? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, in Southeast Asia. I mean, of, in, in, of, in, in of Asia. The, the losing sides. Well, no, because it works quite well in West Germany, doesn't it? But, 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 but. Well, I don't know. I think Germany's in a rotten, a terrible state for at least two or three years. I mean, I don't, I don't oh yeah, but by the, by the sixth. Oh yeah, yeah. Federal Republic but, 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 of so, Germany so is, is a success, so is, and, and Italy's yeah. a success, isn't yeah. it? Into the nineteen fifties and stuff. Gary Bass is talking about you know in Southeast Asia. He's talking about you know the Philippines, you know, Indochina, Vietnam, yeah. uh, um, China. Yeah. You know, China. You know, while this trial is going on, you've got you've got a Chinese judge there and there's a Chinese civil war going on at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but you've got a Russian judge there. By by the end of the trial in 1948, you've got the Berlin airlift. Yeah. You know, so along, you know, you've got this judge sitting alongside French, British and American. The fact that the the French get a seat on the, you know, the UN Security Council is interesting in itself. Yes, the second it world Well, but they also have know, an Indian the, judge. Well, yeah. They have an Indian judge at the, uh, really? the Tokyo sure. trial, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and wow. they do. And he's a, he's a scholar from, from Bengal as well as being a lawyer. So he's an academic as well as a, a, as a lawyer. And he's a last ditch saying, well, we need an Indian. And, and lots of other people don't want to do it. Yeah. And he, he goes in and he's been a loyal Raj servant. And at the end of it, he just goes, you're all absolutely, this, is, rubbish, this is a shower. Um, <laughs> we should exonerate the whole lot. I'm not going for it. And really? only seven out of the 11 judges vote in favour. Four drop out, including the Dutch one. Well, and so, so, so the Americans are leading with it, and the, and the whole ideal yeah, yeah. is that you have this kind of, you know, you're, you're not holding nations to account; you're holding war criminals to account, yeah, yeah. so that the nation can then get on with things. And and this works wow. brilliantly for um, Japan. The caveat, of course, is that the person who's absolutely most guilty of all is the guy who stays in power, which is Emperor Hirohito, because it's on his watch, right? I yeah, mean, and others you know, if he's too. The emperor, others connected yeah. to him, and this is really the troubling right. thing: is that 
there, it's selective. The justice is very selective in post-war Japan. Exactly. That, that's the point. And, but yeah. it works really well. Is the bottom line for Japan? It does. But in an for Japan, it does. Mm -hmm. You almost uniquely. But for everyone else, it's just total turmoil and 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 mayhem and and done to a backdrop of partition in India yeah. and millions being killed in India. And Pakistan, as as Pakistan yeah. emerges, uh, um, yeah. the civil war in in China, another twenty million killed or whatever it is. I mean, it's just it's astonishing. In August nineteen forty five, from an Asian point of view, the war is just beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You that know? that that's definitely the, that's definitely the case. Yeah. The Second World War. I mean, it's interesting. We we spoke to Jonathan Fennell before Christmas, and um, he's he's about to write a a three volume Second World War, and it, which ends at the end of the Chinese Civil War, doesn't it? Is, is, yep. is what is where he's mm. is where he's saying it ends. Um, and I think he's starting in 1931, or he may even be starting in 1917. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, or maybe 1900. You know, I mean, who knows? It goes. Maybe, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Waterloo. You could always start at Waterloo. Yeah, Waterloo. War begins there. American War of Independence. Yeah. Why not? I'm going to begin with the arrival of <laughs> the Big Bang. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1759 in Quebec. Storm <laughs> those heights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. Like, I, I mean, it, but it's no. It's a fast fascinating argument and I, I mean to me it's it's a very kind of western point of view to think of august yeah. 14 15 1945 as the end of the conflict uh, it's mm. really the beginning of the conflict on some levels and actually even from a western point of view it is in the sense that we're going to get involved the u.s in two major wars on the asian continent uh, you know, yes. in the 1950s Korea and, and Vietnam. the 1960s, and obviously Britain. And, and, and that's all because Korea. of involvement in the first, Second World War, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and obviously, you know, the British are involved in Korea, not Vietnam. But, but you know, the, the point still stands that uh, it's really the beginning for all of us on some levels. And, and that's that's part of what really attracted me to the, uh, the idea of doing the trilogy about the army in the Pacific Asia theater, because to me, there's a lot more lessons to be learned from, from the war against Japan than the war in Europe, which in some respects is a one-off smiting Nazism, restoring stability to the European order. And then fortunately no war happens there at a larger scale level until 2022, which even then, you know, doesn't involve Western Europe in terms of actual combat. You know, so so I really think that the, the, the Asia Pacific side gives us kind of more windows to the future and also the kind of fighting. Uh, yeah. it, it's not Geneva Convention kind of well, stuff that we're going to have from then well, on. Well, it, well yeah. And, it, and I mean, it's and it's it's America's two, two ge geopolitical faces, isn't it? Because because, um, you know, the European war in a way, European wars in a way are a legacy of America's uh, uh Origins as a as a state, aren't they? It, it, mm -hmm. As a modern state that it's inhabited by European people, essentially, who bring European history and interest with them. I mean, although obviously America's full of people who've, who've run away from Europe, you can see why they might not want to go back there and get involved in the fighting. Well, and that's again. the mindset. All, that's the disgust yeah, exactly. after exactly. World War One among whites. Exactly. Is well, yeah, which ex explicitly explicitly so in that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm saying we're, but, that's but then, the old but world. Then, but, we're disgusted with it, and here they go again, yeah. and we don't want any part of yeah. it. You know that that yeah, is yeah, certainly yeah. the white yeah. point of view. Uh, but then, but then inevitably, the the, the Pacific is America's geopolitical destiny rather than its sort of historic geopolitical destiny if you see if you see yeah, what I mean. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's and, uh, what MacArthur is kind of arguing during World War II. Is he yeah. saying this is our yeah. future? And I think that there's some yeah. level of truth to that, but I think he was far too dismissive of the importance of Europe and he will be during the Korean War as well when he has this sort of patronizing here we fight Europe's war. You know, you remember when he sang that in yeah, 1950 yeah. 
uh, in 51, it's like, oh my gosh, it's all linked in some ways, but but there's no question that the American future, you know, lay, lay in Asia and the Pacific. Well, in I mean, in the, in the 20th century, how, how, I mean, I suppose you could argue that America occupies Germany until 1990 or something, but, uh, or, or is even, <laughs> or is even, even still today, there, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> even today. How, I mean, how many years fighting does America do in the, in the Pacific in the 20th century? If you talk, if you talk it all, well, in, 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 in East Asia, if you talk it all up. Uh, if we total it all up and uh, we're, you know, post-World War II, uh, there's the three years of the Korean War. And I guess I'm not counting that post-1953 period when there's a lot of tension and we're going to keep substantial forces there. So there's some fighting that happens on the DMZ, whether it's, you know, 1968, whether it's in the 70s or whatever. So I'm, you know, discounting that in a way. But Vietnam, when does that amp up and when does it end? Well, I mean, let's just say 1961 to 75 in terms of a long time, some level of loss time. of life and presence there. That's a yeah. heck of a long time. And then, by the way, let's let's take it forward and talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, which, by the way, are on yeah. the Asian landmass. OK, so that is going to add a lot more years, two more decades. Um, you know, so and how long did we fight in Europe? Really, if you get down to it, only one or one and a half. But yes, we're involved in the war from 1941, the end of 41 on. Yeah, but ground troops fighting in, on actual European soil. Well, that really begins, what, July 10th, July, 1943. July 10th, 1943. And it yeah. lasts less than two years, uh, although it's months. episodic, you know, and, and really the core of it is June 44 through the end of the war in Europe. There's fighting and then there's presence. We've had to have presence yeah. ever since. And uh, and I really, you yeah. know, and I think that's what's fascinating about D-Day. From my point of view, just, you know, as an American and a U.S. historian, in some ways, this is the beginning to me of NATO, of a U.S.-led NATO. Um, and it, that is what we carry forward. And so it's like, okay, what's brought them together? Um, well, I think it's a shared set of values on some levels, right? And, and that applied against Nazi Germany, it'll apply against communism, it'll apply against Putin's Russia, I hope. Um, you know, it's it's that shared set of values that has, has undergirded NATO on that side of the house, but you also kind of see this in Asia and the Pacific too. What's extraordinary about bad Ukraine at the moment is that the figures of the, the Russians are losing. It's kind of, you know, the Second World War scale. And I don't know how they can I mean, sustain you know, that. hundreds of thousands. How can they sustain that when they're not the Soviet well, Union anymore with all these republics and all these buffer zones and all the resources? It's, you know, they're apparently know. making 100 T-80s every month. I mean, I, old tractor factories converted, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's beyond my incredible. level of understanding, I guess. But There'll be a push-pull manufacturing delivery problem. There, there absolutely will. <laughs> there the, just to give it full in, circle. Well, no, you no, said no, I don't have to worry about shipping. Well, the factories are, factories are pushing T-8. T80s because they're easier to make. They're them easier to than... make, and the front are saying we could do something a bit more up to date, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're having that, to... that. That will be that that yeah. exact thing that we were talking about will be happening. Mm -hmm. Will be happening right now, and it'll be there'll be the, the, the there's a kind of like it or lump it thing, I suppose. In in when you're in when when a war's up on its feet, because after all, you say the you know you look at the M1 Abrams products of Cold War military development. Those those pieces of technology they're not only designed. They're designed for a consumer who isn't just the U.S. Army, but they're designed for congressmen who have exactly. uh, uh, who, who really wouldn't mind a, a big, expensive factory That's in their exactly state. Exactly what they're designed for. That's precisely. You know, you look at the development of the F the F thirty five <laughs> is completely is completely driven by. You know, isn't it is, isn't it fantastic that this I don't know fifty million dollar plane is built 
in, in your in your constituency. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else do you want? And it could do everything as well. So you only have to you don't have to build lots. You just build those ones. That, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. The sort of pork barrel aspect to it, which after all doesn't apply it once a war's if you've got a war up and running because because the pull of the battlefield the demand of the battlefield is that is that the tanks don't have to i mean cause the other thing the other thing for instance is you know challenger 2 has lasted 25 years as a as a design how long how long was the comet around for in the british <laughs> yeah, army I mean, nothing nine months start mm. to finish uh, <laughs> and did it did, excelled on the actually arrived at the battlefield too late was overspecked for the battlefield that, that that it arrived on by that time, and and then they didn't make any more. Whereas you know, if you build a Cold War vehicle, it's got to last forever. Oh, it does. To, you know, V fifty two, the Second World War tank. Years. Exactly, a Second World War tank might might last what a three weeks. So yeah. if it breaks down twice in three weeks, that's not so bad. If you've got a Cold War tank, it breaks down twice in three weeks. It doesn't but the other matter. Thing, the, the other thing that I find absolutely <laughs> amazing is that at what point did they think? Okay, so so we got we, you know we, we we know we need lots of Sherman tanks. We know at some point we're going to go into Europe. But what point are they going? When we put in all these tanks, when we put in all these, we're going to need lots and lots of trucks. We're going to need trucks of different sizes. So we're going to need lots and lots of those. Hang on a minute. We've got a civilian truck. Let's just kind of change the body shape a little bit. But the, but, the, but, the, but the axle's the same. You know, the, um, the the chassis is basically the same. Engine's the same. But we'll just sort of change it a little bit, have thicker rubber tires yeah. and that kind of stuff. So they're, they're making that decision. But they're also making the decision about, okay, we're going to need cranes that we can that, that, that we can put on ships. But we're going to need cranes that we can then put onto the port. Because sometimes we're not going to be landing on a beach. We are actually going to have a port, mm-hmm. such as... Anzio or Natuno or Taranto or whatever. We're going to need cranes. So they've got to come over from America. We're going to need graders because we're going to have to have it where air powers up to key to it. Everywhere we go. So uh, we're going to need bulldozers because we're, we're firepower heavy. And um, it's fine in Tunisia, but but or, or southern Tunisia around Gafsa, not not a lot mm-hmm. to kind of a lot of buildings to worry about. But you know, we get into Europe, you know, that's that's going to be quite heavy. So we're going to need bulldozers and and so on. But at what point are they making? Are they they having the foresight to realise that that's what it? And this presumably is because the original intention of the Americans when they come in is to go straight across the channel. So they're already thinking, okay, so what are we going to find when we get to France? Yep. So although they actually then go to Tunisia and they don't need all that stuff there, they're kind of, hang on a minute, we've already prepped for this stuff. We're going to need it when we go into Sicily. Going to need it when we go into Italy. And we're going to need it mm-hmm. when we when we go into um, across the channel in June well, and the, and 44. The other thing we're going to need, which is the, the ultimate unglamorous vehicle, but the unsung hero, the armor world, the recovery vehicle. Um, that vehicle that recovers our tanks that got bogged down or through a track or whatever, so we're going to need that. And so where does all this, I'm simplistically saying this, but it's basically the military professionals have had this concept on the books, these concepts on the books in the interwar period. Um, you know, the, the, the Eisenhowers of the world or whatever. And then once they've been thinking about this already, they've been thinking about it and thinking ahead and arguing among themselves, especially like at the war college level, the command and general staff college level, the war plans level, all that stuff that that the average citizen would have recoiled from and saying these warmongers are planning for a future war. So all this is really under the radar. Um, And it's a very small. Yeah, Because at some point, someone's got to be sat around 
Some, someone's got to be sat around a table going, guys, listen, I've been thinking about this. You know, we're, we're, we're worrying about tax, but we're going to need bulldozers. We're yeah. going to need graders. We're going to need all this other stuff as well. And everyone goes, God, you know what? You're right. I mean, is, is it that com- it is that conversation, surely? I mean, that conversation has to have happened at some point. At some point, someone's got to say it for the first time. And Exactly. And Or they're writing about it, you know, in a, in a war college paper or something like that. Um, right. And then okay. this then combines with the more pragmatic side of 40 and 41 of thinking ahead, like you said, Jim, we're going to need these kind of vehicles. How do we retool our industry? Where will they be? How does it all work? How will we ship it? They're starting to work through those problems. And then, of course, when the U.S. gets in the war, then it all becomes even more pragmatic. But really, a year before Pearl Harbor, we're mobilizing for war at a, on a pretty major level, even to the point of having a draft, obviously. So um, so it's... It, it, then the, the, to, it seems to me the problems that have to be worked out post Pearl Harbor are all of shipping and all of like how you retool the manufacturing base in the most efficient way. Um, you know, the manufacturing base that's already there. And this is what Americans kind of wring their hands over nowadays is would we have the manufacturing base now to face a peer enemy, you know, after having, you know, outsourced a lot of our manufacturing over the course of decades to other countries, would we have that capability now the way we did in World War II, that intrinsic industrial strength that we had? And, I, you know, and I think that's a very good question. But even in World War II, it was a really tough transition. The one thing that the Germans don't have is lots of bulldozers and graders. <laughs> I mean, they just don't yeah, have right. any of this stuff. Exactly. And the Soviets don't have it, too, and we have to give it to them. And it, really, there's only a few countries that do have that. It's U.S., Britain, Canada, um, you know, maybe Australia to some Full extent. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's a big part of the sinews of war. Uh, especially if you want to make armored warfare or if you want to make, you know, like like the British and the Americans are doing, strategic bombing. I mean, that's just not a matter of just sending those bombers up there. It's having all the maintenance and all the stuff, right? But, but then also the, the, the bomber people are in competition with the army people for, yeah. you know, and, and that before the war, as you say, this is all theoretical. I mean, it's, it's more involved than back of the envelope planning, but essentially essentially it's, it's the bomber people saying, we're going to need this, that the army people say we, we're going to need that. The tension between that politically quite extraordinary. The sort of you know that that the Mitchell Mitchell ends up in court, doesn't he? Well, because he's so incendiary. If he had just been like, hey, you know, in the future, we're this is the way we should defend our coasts, and we 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 yeah. really need to be prioritizing. Instead, he's saying they're committing treason, you know, at high levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's for yeah. that incendiary? Yeah. That that's why he's end up on trial. And Ian MacArthur, by the way, was on his jury and, and knew Mitchell pretty well actually but uh right. um yeah i mean it's so so actually we all know who the golden boys are on this side of the atlantic and i think on, on yours as yeah. well of who gets priority it's the aviators and we go down that road yeah. don't we and then we find yeah. out hmm we're gonna have to fight this war on the ground yeah. but there's also very good reasons for doing that in the 1930s I mean, oh, the whole point is to try and sort of so, you know so that you don't have hundreds of divisions of of, of infantry you, you, you know, it's it's inherently inefficient to have three hundred infantry divisions. Well, and it's, it's if, if socially you've got 300 infantry divisions, right? Well, and, well, it's, but it's well, also and, not and, not an efficient use well, of your and, la- of, and, your, la- of and, your manpower and politically unacceptable. That's what I mean. If you if there's if there's thirty if there's well no, if there's thirty infantry divisions, you're you're basically or three hundred infantry. Divisions, you're saying there's going to be a million casualties again. Well, and, and you're, there's, there's no you're drafting no millions of guys, get, including maybe even old guys like us. <laughs> but but what the Allies work out in the 1930s is actually yes, it's politically it's, it's unacceptable, socially it's unacceptable. 
But also, it's just not an efficient use of manpower. Mm. Not in a technological modern world where you've got an alternative means of but, hammering your enemy. But interestingly, what we're talking about there is, the, in a way, is the push-pull of the supply chain, of the yes. political su- supply chain. Is that there might, there might be what politics wants to do, and then there's what society's prepared to do. And can the politicians pull the market towards fighting a war in a certain way or will it be pushed in another direction by society and you know american political society is pushing is pushing uh, american society is pushing the political establishment away from a war for the for the whole of the interwar period while roosevelt is trying to pull the market as it were as he's the, to, to, towards the, the accepting there's going to have to be one and in, in a strange way these things these things are that they're, they're they're reflections of each other aren't they that 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 you, you you know everything's a supply chain in a way and uh, the, 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 there's a there's a political supply chain isn't there and whether there whether whether a politician a politician can can get out of the society what he wants or whether the society can get out of the politician what they want is the thing that's in permanent tension and but yeah. when you come to a question like a global war those those things come right to the front of what what where where the discussion sits and and what you're capable of actually what you're able to do i mean it's interesting jim you talked earlier about um you know uh, uh, or john you mentioned uh, will where can america has America currently got the sort of manufacturing? Ca- I mean, we can't make tanks anymore. Well, we can make we can make a hundred Challenger threes in three years, probably not. Well, well exactly. That's we what we just can't do it anymore. No, no, no. We, 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 can't. we, we, we should be able to. Though. I mean, it's, we, it's ridiculous. We, 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 can't, That's can't, the same current climate. Yeah, <laughs> I think we know for sure we can't. Whereas, you know, <laughs> We're wringing our hands, America thinking can t- we can't, but not one hundred percent sure. Well, I guess. You, but. Well, you can turn out billion dollar <laughs> stealth jets. That you know. I've I've got I've got I've got a final thought on this. When Roosevelt says in nineteen. 1940, I want us to be able to build 50,000 air, um, aircraft in a year. Everyone falls off their seats. Yeah, yep. Everyone just goes, what? Yeah. And and I think it's one of the most brilliant pieces of politics of the entire Second World War because everyone goes, that's insane. That's mad. That's, that's at a scale that no one has ever even thought about before. And then suddenly everyone starts to go, hang on a minute. And and this might be possible. And suddenly, it, almost overnight, it becomes a new normal. And suddenly, America starts thinking, "Wow, we can do we we can do this on a kind of monster scale." But, but, because because what you're talking about, aircraft applies to tanks, applies to dozers, it applies to ships, applies to everything. And and also, more importantly, the Germans go they go batshit when they hear this because they go, "Oh, that's insane." Going sis, they can't do that. They can make toast. Exactly, they, they retreat yeah, yeah, but, into but, their but, racist ideology but, to explain yeah, why we can't yes. do it. But when he's saying that, he's also going, "Yikes!" Yeah, internally he's like, "Oh my god, they may actually do this." But, and I think it's yes. a great moment. I agree, and Jim. Become, and, like, and, and 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 when you have when you have these 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 shocking moments in politics. And, and, you know, let's face it, America's had a few of them recently. <laughs> Something that seems so completely outrageous and abnormal on Tuesday suddenly becomes normal by Friday. Yeah, I know. And that's the key point about the 50,000 aircraft. And this it's, in a it's, positive way. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's laying down a gauntlet, but it's also it's, it's, it's suggesting a scale of ambition which no one else has thought and of, but, which mean, then suddenly becomes actually the new benchmark. Yeah. And that's, that's a game changer. But also, to, to be a... You know, party pooper. I mean, you could argue that the, the, the conclusion the British draw at the end of the Second World War is that central planning is the way to move move things forward. And 
They, yeah. And that turns out to not be quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely <we>, not. <laughs> uh, 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 whereas America concludes that turbocharged military industrial complex at the, at the top of manufacturing is the way to then create a, a, a colossal consumer boom that turns that not only maintains your power as, as the world's predominant power, but will sustain it and and take it right in, into a sort of well science fiction future of going to the moon. Well, absolutely, because 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 in war in in yeah. conflict, but as as in and also in civilian life, you're going to need dozers and graders and ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might not need so many tanks after a while, but but you're still going to need a lot of the things that you're producing. Yeah. The technical know-how that you've learned from your military expansion can be applied to all sorts of. Well, things. there's no question. And so, I mean, to, to build on your point. You have these presidential moments of great aspirations. Roosevelt with the aircraft, right. Kennedy going to the moon. I mean, it all it, it's linked yeah. in that sense, isn't it? And it, because the yeah, second isn't possible without the first happening and creating the sense right. that yeah. we can do big things. And and like you said, the 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 uh, you know production that we've had during the war, the know how that we've gotten, especially on the aviation side, uh, that now makes space possible. The the uh, the technology transfer, shall we put it politely, uh, that we've had uh, at, uh, at the expense of the Germans after World War II, yeah. right? Uh, the Werner von yep. Braun's of the world and all that, too, has, yep. has contributed as well. So, yeah, interesting theme. Well, I mean... That's some pretty big stuff for so, first ep- episode up. So yeah, thanks, Adam Presswich. Thanks, Adam Presswich, yeah, for thanks, that email yeah, that stimulated you, that, that chat. Really yeah, thoughtful job. email. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and there's lots more of it. Not, not that, not that none of it, not that it wasn't all good. It was all great, but there was lots more of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and uh, you want to hear what we think, primarily, if you listen to this. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks, John. Lovely to see you. Um, yep. We will see you all again very soon. 1944, big year. Lots yeah, to talk about. Lots to Cheerio. talk about. See ya. Bye bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.